Will you turn with me, please, to Psalm 44? Psalm 44, the uh, psalm that uh, appears in the Psalter right after the uh, psalm that Claudia just sang. The words from that song are taken from Psalm 42 and 43. Uh, last Sunday we talked about Psalm 45, so uh, Psalm 44 is sandwiched right in between those psalms. My uh, heart has always gone out to people like uh, Binko Bogachev. Uh, you, you may not know who Binko Bogachev is. Actually, you do know who he is. You just don't know him by name. Uh, Bogachev was the, uh, or is the Yugoslavian ski jumper uh, who's featured on ABC's uh, Wide World of Sports every Saturday. He epitomizes the agony of, of defeat. Uh, a number of years ago, I heard Kurt Gowdy interview Bogachev, and I was struck by uh, the niceness of this young man. Uh, he, is, he is a terrific athlete and just a wonderful young man. He would worked very hard for, I think it was the 72 or 76 Olympics, and uh, as you know, he made his run and, and augured in at the end, and he will forever be emblematic of, uh, of disaster. And I, I think a lot of my friends who have, who have decided they're going to follow the Lord and their lives have ended in disaster. And my heart goes out to them as well. And there are a lot of you that struggle for years with your relationship to Christ. And you finally made that hard decision to burn your bridges and, and follow the Lord. And, and since then, nothing has gone right. You've been... Uh, You've had marital problems, you've had financial problems, you've had physical problems. You went out to uh, do combat with some sin and, and you were defeated. You went out like David, picked out your five stones and, and beamed yourself with the rock. <laughs> and I, uh, I know the feeling. And that's a hard, it's, that poses a question for our, for our heads and for our hearts. How can that be? And it calls, I think, for what, what theologians call a theodicy, a, a vindication, a justification for God. Somehow God has to answer the, the question in our minds. Why? Why are, are things so adverse? Why is life so difficult when I've decided to follow him? Now, that's the question that the psalmist raises and answers in this, in this psalm, Psalm 44. These psalms intrigue me. They, uh, they're masterpieces of literature as well as uh, uh, spiritual masterpieces. They were very often stylized, and this is, the, uh, this is true of this particular psalm. As I mentioned last week, very often these psalms begin with, uh, out of the experience of some individual who's had a tough time and God has met him in some certain way, and, and he, he writes a poem about it. And then that poem was incorporated into Israel's uh, songbook, their hymn book. And it became everyone's experience. But uh, very often, before these psalms were, in, were placed into the Psalter, they, they were shaped and reshaped and reformed and stylized. And under the supervision of the Holy Spirit, I, I see the process of inspiration working not only in, in the original uh, uh, writing of the song, the original authorship, but in the changes that took place under the uh, auspices of the of the prophets and priests in, in the temple. This particular psalm is uh, constructed like a ziggurat, like a stepped pyramid. 
the temples in those days, in particular the pagan temples, uh, were tiered pyramids. There'd be a foundational level and then a smaller tier on top of that and a smaller tier on top of that, rising to a structure at the top, uh, which was the sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. And I believe that the uh, uh, that those who worked on this psalm had that structure in mind. The, the first tier, the first paragraph is verses 1 through 8. There are ten lines in, of Hebrew text that form the foundational level of the pyramid. And in this particular paragraph, uh, the poet praises God for past victory. Then uh, the next tier, the next paragraph, is verses 9 through 16. And there are eight lines of, of Hebrew in this, in this paragraph. So you have a smaller tier rising uh, from the foundational tier. And here in this paragraph, uh, 9 through 16, he, he, he complains. He offers a lament. Uh, he, he cries the blues. He, he has the woes. Woe is me. So he doesn't understand why they've been so disastrously defeated. And uh, then in verses 17 through 22, you have six lines of, of Hebrew text. That's the next tier. It's a plea of innocence. He's trying to think through his defeat. Why did this happen to me? And uh, he, he can't think of anything that he's done wrong that would bring about this disaster. And the top, the top level of that, uh, of that tear is the insight that gives him rest. And that leads to prayer, which is the Holy of Holies, the sanctuary at the top, at the apex of the pyramid, verses 23, uh, 23 through 26. And there are four lines of Hebrew text there. So the structure rises to prayer and worship. purpose of the psalm is to lead us into God's presence so we can worship him. All right, now let's look at the foundational level, verses 1 through, through 8, uh, which uh, is praise for past Victory. So many of these uh, psalms, even the lament psalms, begin with praise. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Hebrew title for this collection is called Praises, Tephilim. All of the psalms, with the exception of Psalm 88, contain some element of praise. Uh, Old Testament uh, scholars refer to Psalm 88 as the black sheep of the Psalter because there's no praise offered in that, in that uh, psalm, in that psalm. But in all other psalms, there's a note of praise, and this one begins with praise for past victory. We have heard with our ears, O God, what our fathers told us, what you did in their days. And, and you'll notice the emphasis on, on the pronoun you. It's underscored time and time again through this psalm. What you did in their, in their days, in days long ago, with your hand, you yourself drove out the nations and planted our fathers. The nations are the nations that inhabited Canaan before the conquest. You crushed the peoples and made our fathers uh, flourish. He, he's describing the campaign for, for Canaan. The swift contest, about 12 years, and they drove out the uh, Canaanites. They drove across the center of the land, broke the back of Canaanite resistance, went moved to the south and then to the north. And in 12 years, they conquered the land with virtually no loss of life. The only loss of life was at Ai uh, because of Achan's uh, sin. But uh, almost uh, no other casualties during this, uh, during this campaign. And it was God that, that did it. You did it in their days. With your hand, you drove out the nations. And then the secret of that success is supplied in verse 3. It was not by their sword that they won the land, 
nor did their arm bring them salvation. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. This is not the normal word for love in the Old Testament. It's a word that means uh, to be delighted in. You like them. That's the idea. We talked last week about that, uh, the, the, the notion that love is a theological concept. God has to love us. That's just the way he is. His nature is love. The, the Old Testament and New Testament push it a bit farther. Tell us that God actually likes us. And not only that, he beams at us. He smiles at us. That's, that's, what, that's behind the idea behind the, this idiom, the light of your face. We have the same idea in, in English when someone beams at us. It, it indicates that they like us. And as he looks back over their victory in Canaan, he says, God did it all because he was fond of us. He liked us. He cared about us. He smiled on us. Now, uh, he goes on to say, we've not uh, lost the secret of success. We've not forgotten God. You are my king, verse 4. Uh, this is the king speaking. Very often, the, as I said last week, these poems were written for the king. They were put in his mouth, and uh, he recited them before the congregation. He led the congregation in prayer. That's why you have the pronouns I and we. Uh, occurring throughout the Psalms, a certain fluidity in those pronouns because sometimes it's the king speaking and sometimes it's uh, the king speaking on behalf of, uh, of Israel. And uh, he indicates that uh, God is his king. You are my king and my God who decrees salvation for Jacob. Jacob's just another word for Israel. Jacob was the father of the 12 tribes and often Israel is called Jacob. Through you, we push back our enemies. Through your name, we trample our foes. I do not trust in my bow either. I'm like Joshua. He didn't go out uh, in the energy of, of the flesh to do battle. He didn't trust in his bow. He trusted in God. My sword does not bring me salvation, but you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. In God, we make our boast, our hallelujahs, all day long, and we will praise your name forever. Selah, he says. Mmm, think about that. Uh, we we are, are going out to battle in the same spirit in which Joshua and, and the tribes, the original tribes, went out to do, to do battle. Nothing has changed, only the results. Uh, this is what happened historically. Israel went out to, to do battle with some nation. We have no idea who it is because we're unable to date this psalm. And, and they suffered a staggering defeat. And they didn't understand why. The, the psalm is a struggle uh, for some explanation for this national defeat. Uh, there are no answers at, at first. There's no explanation for this defeat. Sometimes defeat is the result of, of individual sin. Sometimes defeat is the result of uh, the fact that we're part of a sinful race. But, but neither of these solutions applied in this case. Couldn't put his finger on anything that had gone wrong, that they had done wrong. No aching in the camp. And yet they, they had been defeated. And he, he laments that defeat in verses 9 through 16. This is the next uh, paragraph, the next tier of the pyramid built upon that foundation. He looks back upon past defeat, or past victory, and now he, he laments present defeat. Now let me say at this point, it's all right to complain to God. 
You can take your, uh, uh, your criticisms, your complaints, your woes, your laments to God. That's all right. He's big enough to handle it. He doesn't get put off by that. Now, please don't share them with anyone else, but, but you can take them with him. That's all right. And that's what he does. He, he complains to God, and his complaints are hot and heavy. Now, he says, you have rejected and humbled us. And you'll notice again the, the, the pronoun you that keeps occurring uh, through this, uh, through this psalm, uh, the the these writers, these Old Testament writers, and you'll find the same thing true in the New Testament. Know nothing of secondary causes. Everything goes back to God. He leaves everything at the feet of God. It's on His doorstep. He's responsible. There are no random happenings, as R.C. Sproul says. There are no maverick molecules. Uh, nothing, nothing is out of control. God's in control. He cannot be blamed for this defeat, but he could have stopped it. And he takes everything back to the fact that behind this disaster, somehow, God is, God is, he's there, he's at work, he's aware. He could have put an end to it, if he had so chosen. You, he says, have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our enemies. And, and you'll see as he laments how his distress deepens. You made us retreat before the enemy. They were routed. Uh, our adversaries have plundered us. They were spoiled. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep. They were slaughtered like uh, Custer at the little bighorn and have scattered us among, among the nations. Now, this is not the big exile into Babylon, but they were deported into, the, into other nations. They were sold into slavery. You scattered us among the nations, you sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from the sale. You didn't get anything out of it except reproach and dishonor. We're your people. And what happens to us reflects upon your name. This is a reproach upon you. And uh, furthermore, you have made us a reproach to our neighbors. The scorn and derision of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations. The people shake their heads at us. My disgrace is before me all day long, and my face is covered with shame at the taunts of those who reproach and revile me because of the enemy who is bent on revenge. And you can see what he's trying to do. He's trying to make some sense out of this defeat. Where did we go wrong? Uh, and he can't put his finger on anything. And not only is there outward mocking, but there's inward demoralization. Israel's been defeated, and they are utterly demoralized, and he can't see any reason for it. He can't put his finger on any specific sin. And I know that there are some of you right now that are sitting there that can identify very, very well with Israel. You, you cannot, you know you're not perfect, but uh, you can't put your finger on any specific sin, and yet your life is falling apart. You're, you're having problems in your marriage. You're having problems with your children. Uh, you're having financial difficulties. Your jobs are not going well. You're getting a lot of pressure from your employer or your employees. A lot of physical sickness, uh, and, and, and there's no real explanation for it because you, you're trying to do what God has called you to do, and that's that's demoralizing, it's discouraging, and it's all right to complain. He complains about that, about the state of affairs. Now, uh, the next paragraph, paragraph verses 17 through 22, uh, six lines. The third tier, all this happened to us, he says, though we have not forgotten you, 
or been false to your covenant. Our hearts have not turned back. Our feet have not strayed from your path. But you crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals. Uh, The jackals inhabited abandoned cities. You desolated us. You destroyed our cities. You made them a place for jackals and covered us over with deep darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God, if we'd been untrue to the truth, or spread out our hands to a foreign God, if we'd been guilty of idolatry, would not God have discovered it, since he knows the secrets of, of the heart? You see what he's saying? We didn't do anything wrong, and you know it. How many times have you, have you said that to God? I, I know I'm not perfect, but I can't think of anything that I'm... I'm doing wrong. There's no sin in my life that I'm not willing to deal with. What did I do? I deserve better than this. What's going on? Now, what happens in this psalm is that at the moment of greatest perplexity, the light dawns. Very often, that's what happens in the psalms. As you read through them, the distress darkens, deepens, it gets darker and darker, until finally it's like pulling the chain, the light comes on. There's a, there's a moment of truth, a sudden insight that explains the, the, the darkness. It's like Psalm 73. In, in Psalm 73, a psalm that I uh, taught on some, a couple of years ago, the uh, psalmist is bemoaning the fact that uh, that he loves God and everything's going wrong for him and his neighbor across the street couldn't care less. He never makes any time for God. Uh, he's totally indifferent to spiritual things and he's fat, dumb, and happy. Everything is going well with him. He doesn't have any problems. He's prospering in his business. He's, uh, he's physically sound. He looks at himself and he says, I'm trying to follow God and everything is going wrong. And he begins to complain. Uh, although in the middle of it, he breaks it off and he says, it's a good thing I didn't share all of this with my friends because I might have done damage to their faith. And then there is this moment of truth. He said, I went into the temple and it dawned on me that, that my friend across the street is on the slippery slope toward death. And one of these days he's going to stand before God and then both of us will get our reward. And, and, and therefore there is some justice. There is some sense. In life, you know, that moment of truth that dawns. Now that's what happens in the psalm. At the moment of, of despair, at the moment of greatest perplexity, the light dawns, and it's verse 22. Now the uh, the connecting link in my uh, text is the little word "yet," but actually, the uh, uh, the Hebrew word is just a strong exclamation. Hebrews, uh, Jews are very emotional people, and their language reflects the, their feelings. You know, something's not going right. Oi, vey, they say. You know, whoa, whoa is me. Uh, and that's what happens at this point. He says, oh, sort of the idea. The, the light dawns. Key, he says, I see. For your sake. We face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. He understands that Israel is suffering for God's sake. He understands that Israel is caught in the middle between a cosmic war between men and demons against the Lord and his Messiah. Uh, Psalm 2 describes that, that conflict from the very beginning of time. 
Demons have been conspiring to undo what God has been doing to bring salvation to the world. And very often people who have aligned themselves with God are in the line of fire. So they take the shots. Isn't that exactly what Paul says in in 2 Timothy 3 when he says, Everyone who wants to live godly in Christ Jesus, what? Will suffer persecution. That's a promise. You know, we don't generally put that in our promise box, but that's a promise. Life could be very much easier for you if you did not belong to Christ. Do you understand that? Uh, when Paul was on his way to Damascus, he was, uh, he was stopped on, you know, on, on the journey, and the Lord appeared to him. And he's, Paul, in looking back on it, said, The Lord showed me at that point what, how many things I would suffer for his sake. Paul was a rising young scholar, a man on the way up. Everything was going his way. A lot of acclaim, a lot of success, apparently well-to-do. And from that point on, his life took another turn. He, he submitted to Christ as Lord, and his whole life began to fall apart. He became sick. He was sick most of his life. Uh, he was rejected by his friends. It appears that his, his wife and family rejected him. He suffered the loss of all things, as he puts it. Uh, He was in and out of prisons for the rest of his life. Life went very hard for Paul. It would have gone much better for him if he had never met the Lord. Now, do you understand where the psalmist is at this point? He suddenly discovers that it's because he's on the right side, that things are going so wrong. As a matter of fact, as I've thought about this psalm, it seems very clear to me that there is no correlation between spirituality and material success. No correlation. We would like to believe that if, if we give our hearts to the Lord, we finally yield ourselves to Him, that we're going to experience material success, physical success, uh, we're going to do well in our businesses, but it isn't necessarily so. It may happen, but there's no guarantee. It may be that things will go Go the other way, that you'll find life very difficult, as the Apostle Paul did, and as and as Israel did under this under this king. Now you shouldn't think that because things are, are not going well that you've chosen the wrong side or that you're on the wrong course. The very fact that things are going hard indicates that you're on the right course. F. B. Myers uh, said, "If if we're told that a, a journey will be a hard journey, every hard jolt along the way assures us that we're on the right path, and and we can be assured that that we're moving in the right direction when when things get tough. It just means that we're in the middle. We're caught in the middle. We're taking we're taking the shots the demons are taking at at God, and we're getting wounded, and it hurts." Now, the light dawns for the psalmist, and that leads him to prayer and worship. Verse 23. Awake, O Lord, why do you sleep? Now, that's the language of appearance. The Lord really isn't asleep, nor is he indifferent. Uh, It's simply an idiom to explain the delay. Delay always seems to be part of the part of the process. God does not always come running to our to our defense. It may seem that that He doesn't care, but He does. Awake, O Lord! Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself! Do not reject us forever. 
Why do you hide your face and forget your uh, forget our misery and oppression? We're brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us, redeem us, because of your unfailing love. The, the last word in this psalm, the bottom line, is God's love. And that's what assures us during these tough times. The fact that, that God is delaying, that things are not going well, there's no indication that God does not love us. He does love us. He does care. He's not indifferent. I think the best the best illustration of this uh, this idea is our Lord in the boat in the in the in the midst of the Sea of Galilee in the storm. He says to the disciples, "Let's go to the other side." He did not say, "Let's go out in the middle and sink," which is good to keep in mind. He said, "Let's go to the other side." They get in the boat. They start to row across. Our Lord is weary. He gets his sea bag, fluffs it up, goes down to the bottom of the boat. And uh, goes to sleep, and he's snoozing away when the squall hits and the ship begins to toss and the men are rowing like crazy and they're not making any headway against the wind. And they begin to ship water, and the disciples uh, look at the Lord and he's still asleep. And they go over and they wake him up, and as the NIV puts it, I like their translation of this, uh, the question. They say to him, above the noise of the storm, Lord, don't you care that we're about to drown? Of course he cared. It's his, it's his character to care. And uh, the Lord stood up and shook his head, cleared the cobwebs out of his mind, and wiped the sleepers out of his eyes, and stood up and, and, and looked at the sea and addressed himself to the sea and said, All right, that's enough of that. Quiet, hush, be still. And the sea was like a pane of glass. Now, we, we go through these tough times for the sake of Christ, and we wonder if God knows or cares is he really indifferent? Does it matter that I've chosen this side? Yes, it does. It matters. You will suffer. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. He does. Underneath and beyond is his unfailing, everlasting love. You're surrounded by it. And uh, the fact that he's delaying doesn't mean that he's indifferent. It just means that he, he knows the time for deliverance. He sets the time for our salvation. It may be that you or I will suffer affliction because we have sided with Christ until he comes back. He may, he may not alleviate that suffering in this life. But again, that doesn't mean he, he doesn't love us because one of these days his love is going to be demonstrated in that he will come back and set things right. Now, it's interesting to see the use that Paul makes of this psalm. This is what put me on to this, uh, the interpretation of this psalm. Uh, because I, I realized one day what Paul saw in it. Now, turn to Romans 8, because he quotes Psalm 44, 22. And I want you to see the use that he makes of it. Paul's argument in Romans 8 is that suffering in this life is... Uh, uh, when compared with the glory that uh, will be manifest when our Lord comes, when we see him and we're transformed into his image and, and we're like him, the suffering that we experience is, you know, it's a small thing compared with the glory to be revealed. And he argues that God is working all things together for good. In other words, everything in, in history is trending toward that time when we see the Lord and we become like him. That's the ultimate goodness of God is seen in what he will do at the end. 
the, the judgment is not at the end of the day or, or, or at the end of this year. It's at the end of the age. And some people may go through life and suffer because they're aligned to God. But, but one of these days, God's going to manifest his just justice in setting everything right. Some people will have to bear the heat of the day. Remember the parable that Jesus told about the different uh, the people that were sent out into the vineyard at different times in the day. Some had it better than others, and God says, I have the right to do as I please with my vineyard, and that's true. He does. But at the end, everyone is rewarded. That's the point of, of the parable. God is working everything together for good. Now he says in, at, at the end of this argument, uh, verse 35, Who shall separate us? From the love of Christ. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. You see what he's saying? He sees the death and destruction, trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Are all manifestations of the fact that we have been aligned with God. We are suffering for his sake. We are like sheep that are led... Uh, to slaughter. Paul says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You understand what he's saying? Uh, the, the hurts, the blows, the struggles, the pain, the anguish of present trouble is just that. It's present trouble. That's all it is. And underneath and beyond is everlasting love. You see, that's what enables us to conquer. We may not see the victory in this life, but the victory is certain. Because behind everything, underneath everything, surrounding us is the love of Christ. And one of these days, uh, you who are sitting out here, who, who very often ask that question, why? why? Why are all these things happening to me? I'm trying to get it right. My, my life is devoted to Christ. I'm trying to walk with him, but I just can't. Things aren't going right for me. Like Roy Hobbs, life has not turned out the way I thought it would. One of these days, you're going to see the Lord. And he's going to put his arms around you, and he's going to say, You did well. I loved you through the whole thing. And the manifestation of that love will be that he will fulfill and satisfy your heart and your life with his, with his eternal love. And with that perspective, Paul can say we're more than conquerors. We're super conquerors through him that loved us. Let's pray. Father, we, we, uh, we're grateful for this psalm and the way it unravels for us one of the mysteries of life. Uh, these, these blows that we take, Lord, are inexplicable apart from revelation. You know our hearts. You know that, that our desire is to follow you and to love you and to respond to your love for us. And yet uh, life doesn't seem to go the way we want it to go. 
It's good to be reminded again that this in no way indicates your disfavor, but that you do love us and that your love is demonstrated in the cross and that ultimately that love will be consummated in our becoming everything that that you've planned and designed us uh, to be. We thank you for that assurance. And in the months ahead, as we head into the the, the hard things in our life, we ask that we would be assured of your presence and assured of, of your love and assured of the outcome. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.